welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. Thank you for listening and making a commitment to learning. Hope you guys are doing well. I am your co-host, Jordan, along with Yvonne. Hi. Hi. How's everybody's week going? Mine's pretty good. Yeah, so, I know. Yours? Uneventful? Not too bad. I mean, yeah. it's Sunday morning here in California. Weather is changing. Yeah, it's nice and cool here because... It rained yesterday, so. Oh, nice. No, it's, it's cooling off. It's it's doing that weird hot days and cold days thing. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Typical, like, we can't decide if it's fall or yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, getting into the show last week, our question of the week was, how does your practice manage pain and how do you educate your clients? So if you haven't commented, we would like you to on internal medicine for vet techs page, and then hopefully we will kind of get on track of answering any questions and things like that too. We're pre-recording, so it's kind of hard to answer questions right now. <laughs> but yeah, if you guys want to head over to internal medicine for vet slash podcast, that'll work. We'll also, we just created a short link internal medicine for vet slash podcast is quite a mouthful. So we have imfpp.org slash podcast. So you can always check that out. In case you don't remember, we do have internal medicine for pet parents is the, the kind of overarching company. And so a lot of our stuff is linked with them as well. And it's the same mm -hmm. people. It's just geared towards pet owners versus technicians. So it's mostly the same things, but just lots of ways to find us. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of ways to get to us. <laughs> so this week we will be discussing pancreatitis. I know in specialty practice, well, in internal medicine, we see that a lot, but I know when I worked in general practice, we saw it a lot. So <laughs> yeah, I think pancreatitis is one of those. Yeah. So many animals get it. It's, it's kind of crazy. I, I remember in general practice, yeah. we saw a ton of it too especially around the holidays. And this episode should be going live right before Thanksgiving. We did this on purpose because you'll probably be seeing more of the pancreatitis in the next month. So we thought it was pretty timely to talk about the pancreatitis. So what is pancreatitis? So it's inflammation of the pancreas. If you remember your tech schooling and learning what those words meant the itis is inflammation of pretty much anything. Pancreatitis is the most common exocrine pancreatic disease in both dogs and cats. So not mm -hmm. just limited to one species. Yeah. I, so I have to, I have to say this because it makes me laugh every time I think exocrine and endocrine. Now I, I believe exocrine and endocrine pancreatic functioning is, is how Jordan and I really met. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I just, I, I'll, I'll throw this little tidbit out there. So I, we created the page internal medicine for petparents.com slash endocrine. I think that was the page, right? Endocrine. Yeah. And um, we were talking about the endocrine and the exocrine function. Oh, maybe it was the pancreatitis, pancreas page. Anyways. <laughs> yeah, I think it was specifically the yeah. pancreas page. And so we, we put it all up there and it's a funny story because Ashley and I had gone back and forth. <laughs> Ashley had written the, the post first and it was, she was in the middle of doing a bunch of stuff for conferences and she had mixed up exocrine and endocrine. And I was like, Ashley, I know you, I know you know this better because you, you lecture about 
this stuff all the time. And so I gave her crap about it. Well, we missed one. <laughs> And got put up on the website and Jordan, Jordan wasn't even, she wasn't a BTS yet. She was still studying for her boards. And she was like, she sent me this cute little Facebook message and she's like, so I don't want to be that person, but I think yeah. that's a mistake. Uh, do you mind me? To, and I, and I was just like, oh my God, I'm so sorry that there's a mistake. Please tell me what it is so we can fix it. And then Jordan and I kind of just hit it off after there. Cause I was like, thank you. Please let me know if there's any other mistakes. Cause we are not perfect. So I also, yeah. if you guys see mistakes in anything that we put up, please let us know. You can do contact at internal medicine for vet it, It'll get to us and we can fix things like exocrine and endocrine, but yeah. a little side note. That's an easy one to mix yeah. up. Yeah. But yeah. I, I was like, I don't want to be that person. <laughs> But I swear, like, <laughs> well, it made me feel smart. I was like, oh my yes. God, I got and something. I, I, joked, I was like, Jordan passed the test. She knows the difference between exocrine right? and endocrine. And, it, and it's funny because I think a lot of people kind of forget what that is. So I'll just oh. go back to what is exocrine? What is endocrine? So endocrine, mm -hmm. endo means inside, right? And exo means outside so exiting so endocrine is going into the body into the bloodstream whereas exocrine is excreted out so you can think excreted exocrine so that is when things leave the body so whether that sweat or in our case pancreatic stuff it's mm -hmm. leaving the body and remember i know this is really weird and it goes way back to like tech school but <laughs> inside of your gi tract is technically the outside of your body because there is yeah. skin that lines the entire lining of your GI tract and that everything that's in the GI tract is outside, which blows my mind every single time I think about it. But anyways, right. Exocrine, endocrine. So the endocrine function of the pancreas is what produces insulin, um, the hormone, well, that we should all know that uh, decreases blood sugar um, or glucose in the bloodstream. And then it also produces glucagon, which is a hormone that increases blood sugar um, in the bloodstream. So that's within the blood. That's, that's what the pancreas is producing. So there could be a little confusion because you think that it's producing. So it's excreting like glucagon and insulin, but it, it's still within the bloodstream, mm -hmm. like you said, versus the exocrine pancreas is made up of the like duct system that opens into the duodenum. So it's part of the GI tract. So that's the part that outside the body. So it, it secretes digestive enzymes, which are essential for digestion, just like how it kind of breaks down proteins, triglycerides, carbohydrates. And then it's also responsible for secreting substances that are responsible for absorbing cobalamin, which we talked mm -hmm. about already a little bit, B12. So the exocrine function is kind of when that gets messed up, that's the, the pancreatitis kind of messing with the exocrine function of the pancreas. Yeah. And, and it, you know, that's the key thing is there's that duct that goes from the pancreas out into, mm -hmm. out into the GI tract. And, and there's a lot of things that can happen with a duct. Just think of same thing with, I know this sounds weird, but the duct like in your skin. So if, if, it, mm. if it gets clogged, then it causes backup and causes problems. And that can also be from inflammation, junk that gets up in there an infection. So those are all different ways that the duct can get messed up. And yeah. the pancreas gets mad when that duct 
gets messed up because <laughs> everything starts backing up. Right. So, um, that's yeah. just, there's a lot of ways that ducts can get clogged and we'll talk about some of those in, in just a few minutes too. Yeah. So I think the way we are trying to kind of set this up is like, when you go into a room with a client, like, what do you want to ask? Like you want to know history questions, how it might present. You got to know species that it, it's common in breed age. So I think, I know when I think of pancreatitis or when I see a patient on the schedule that's coming in for vomiting and diarrhea and abdominal pain, I automatically think schnauzers. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because I automatically think golden retrievers. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> everything. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think that's where you got to like look yeah. at age too. So, but, but yeah, breed specific. Yeah. Schnauzers. So there was a study that genetics kind of, they feel like play a role. So you have those breeds like schnauzers and dachshunds that are just kind of predisposed to getting pancreatitis. Mm -hmm. But of course, I think, I think what people don't realize is most cases of pancreatitis are idiopathic. So it means we don't ever really find the cause for why their pancreas got so angry, mm -hmm. but dietary indiscretion is, is believed to be the most common risk factor. So those dogs who get into the trash after Thanksgiving, they eat all that leftover grease from the turkey yeah. or <sighs> when clients love their pets so much that they give them turkey and Thanksgiving oh, yeah. dinner as yeah. well. And you're like, Oh, okay. Well, thanks for coming into my clinic now. Right. Yeah. It's job security. Yeah. It's like <laughs> the other thing too is this is, and I, I cannot remember where I saw this at one point, but it was, it's one of those things where they get into the trash. It may not happen right away. It can sometimes mm -hmm. take four to six weeks for that pancreas, that inflammation to overwhelm it and then become an issue. So when we're getting history, it's really good idea to check to see if any time in the last two months did they get into something that they weren't supposed to, you know, was it the Halloween yeah. candy? Um, you know, did they have chocolate <laughs> for Halloween and they weren't supposed to, because the yeah. other thing too, we talked about this a little bit, especially schnauzers, like schnauzers, they have the, they're predisposed to getting that that high cholesterol, but our diabetic mm -hmm. patients, because you know, that's the pancreas, right? So high mm -hmm. levels of sugar in the blood pisses off the pancreas. So they're more predisposed to getting pancreatitis as well. So it's hard because it's like, is the inflammation, yeah. the pancreatitis making the diabetes worse or is the diabetes with the high sugar level making the pancreatitis worse? So you have both that really, you have to manage both. And that's just something yeah. to kind of think about. Yeah. I think it's just trying Trying to like really think back about like what other diseases could possibly be going on in your patient. Is mm -hmm. it a Cushing's patient? Cause they're predisposed to developing pancreatitis, even though I don't think, at least when I was in general practice, that was not something that I would put two and two together for. Cause I wasn't as educated no, as I am and, now. And we'll do an episode about Cushing's and Addison specifically. Mm -hmm. Cause I, I feel like that is one in general practice. You're like, Oh, it's a cushion. I like, I remember learning about it in school, but I didn't understand yeah. what the heck it was until I really had to deal Definitely. with it in internal medicine on a yeah. weekly you're basis. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like, oh, they just have a poor haircut. And yeah. A you're like, whatever. No I don't know. <laughs> it has something to do with steroids, but, but I don't know which way. Like you never remember which way it yeah. goes. You're like, is Cushing's low or high? Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about yeah. that. But yeah, it, it is interesting to remember that some of these because it's comorbidities, right? That other mm -hmm. disease processes that these patients have that will predispose them to other disease processes. Yeah. So I think you got to just think of it in the sense of like when there's other diseases going on, there's other like high or low levels of some sort of substance in the body that's just overwhelming 
the pancreas. So, but I think too, people underestimate trauma. So mm. yeah, you have the patient who came in and he was bumped by a car maybe four weeks ago, but it wasn't like anything major. He had a couple scrapes and bruises, but then a couple weeks later he gets pancreatitis, but trauma surgery, of course, major trauma. So those dogs who really are hurt by the vehicle that they were trying to chase after when they're in hospital and you're you're focusing on like the fractured leg or something and then two days into the hospital they have pancreatitis so and and kind um, of to go along with surgery too i think people forget this is when you have a low blood pressure in surgery it affects mm -hmm. the other Mm -hmm. organs right so they become hypoxic because they're not getting blood flow kidneys i mean everybody thinks kidneys right low blood pressure will affect kidneys yeah but it can also affect your pancreas so just yeah you know when you're monitoring anesthesia, just be really mindful of keeping your blood pressure where, you know, it should be. So we make sure all of our organs are happy, healthy, and don't have issues. And in surgery, like if you have other surgeries, so like a foreign body surgery or a gallbladder surgery, anytime you're near that duct, like the inflammation from that surgery can really like mess it up and and make it, make the pancreas mad. So just kind of keep that in mind too when when you're thinking surgery and foreign bodies and all that stuff yeah pancreas is definitely finicky it doesn't like but and then of course you do have you do have foreign bodies because an actual foreign material is obstructing the gi tract therefore like it's just causing inflammation to the pancreas because it can't do its normal function of trying to break down those uh carbs and things so everything just becomes angry so trying to really see what your patient's history is. Do they have a habit of eating things that they shouldn't? Pine cone, corn mm. cob, they chew the stuffing out of their uh, toys. My dogs do that all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have one dog who will eat socks. So Yeah, I had one growing up too. Mm-hmm. So just really trying to get that history of like, have they ever had pancreatitis before? Do they have underlying diseases? Has there been any recent trauma? Like maybe they fell down the stairs because I have a very clumsy dog as well. <laughs> so um, yeah. And w- we actually had a foreign body where the foreign body itself was just sitting mm-hmm. right at the like outflow tract of the pancreas yeah. and the gallbladder. And it was just like, everything's mad because it can't, the juices can't go where they're supposed to go. Right. So that's yeah. another thing to think of with foreign bodies is it can block the duct opening and just cause a problem. So, so I think obtaining that, that history and really trying to consider like the patient's record. Like before you check in the patient, read through briefly to see what other diseases they might be, you might be treating them for already. Mm -hmm. So I think the most common clinical signs though, too, when you have a pancreatitis patient is anorexia, vomiting. I mean, those are the two number one things I think of when I think of a pancreatitic Mm -hmm. patient and then lethargy, diarrhea, dehydration, and then abdominal pain. I think the abdominal pain gets overlooked sometimes. Yeah. And I, we've actually had a couple of animals come in through our emergency department and they're like, Oh, it has back pain. Right. And they're, they're, it's like, Oh yeah, it's just uncomfortably is back pain. And you're like, Nope, not the back. Like his back is fine, which is good, but it's actually, you know, pancreatitis because they do that you know, the crunch up thing and it looks like back Mm -hmm. pain, but it, you know, that physical exam is huge to isolate where the problem is. Yeah. Yeah. They're still hunched. They still cry out when you pick them up. Like it's, yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of those where they come in for back Mm -hmm. pain. So the other, the other thing that's interesting to remember is cats are not small dogs. So they're, the dogs have the two openings 
one for the bile, the, the common bile duct, and then one for the pancreatic outflow. So there's two openings where those enzymes, right? Because enzyme break things. So two openings for the enzymes to flow out into the duodenum. Whereas cats only have one opening. So the mm -hmm. bile and the pancreatic juices, they, the ducts kind of branch or the branches come together to one, call it a tree trunk, right? And then that opens, there's like one tube that opens into the intestines. So the problem with that is because you've only got the one opening, if there's inflammation there, whether that's at the duodenal opening or in that, in that duct itself, now instead of just blocking one or the other, you're blocking both. What that means for us is we have to be really careful because these cats, if they have pancreatitis, they could very easily block the outflow of the gallbladder, which in turn mm -hmm. causes issues with the liver. You've got cats that are turning yellow because now our T-billy is going up, right? So mm -hmm. if you guys have heard of triaditis, that's kind of that's kind of where the triaditis comes from is you've got yeah. inflammation in the three big organs that are just mad and cats are really predisposed to it, which is also like your DKA cats that come in, newly diagnosed diabetes that also have pancreatitis probably are going to have some liver inflammation as well. So it's just mm -hmm. something to keep in, in mind that you may be seeing these, these icteric cats, but sometimes you'll see dogs with hepatitis that also have pancreatitis. So just kind of keep that in mind because it's all really close. I mean, even though they connect in different spots in dogs, we're not talking a lot of space. It's within an inch of each other. So, you know, inflammation yeah. in one can easily cause inflammation in the other. So that's just a little anatomy, anatomy thing going on. There. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think when you have these patients come into the hospital and your, your doctor is doing that differential diagnosis, things that are going to need to be ruled out, foreign body, gastritis, renal or liver diseases, kitty cats with hyperthyroid disease, just because it can look similar. And well, they're not anorexic, but they're vomiting everywhere. So you do want to try to rule that out. Insulinomas is like a little small, tiny tumor that's very hard to find on a pancreas <laughs> or any sort of pancreatic cancer. And then like Vaughn said, so gallbladder disease can definitely show up similar to pancreatitis. So those, those are some big rule outs that can be ruled out with just basic lab work. You want to do your basic chemistry, CBC, T4, UAs, just to try to rule out all the other things that could be occurring aside from pancreatitis. Yeah. And one that we kind of forgot to put in our notes, so we'll definitely put it here is intestinal disease. I mean, if you've got mm -hmm. inflammatory bowel disease, you've got GI lymphoma, you're, you've got inflammation. So it could very easily yeah. cause, cause obstruction as well. So kind of leading into the diagnostics of what we're going to do aside from baseline blood work. We want to talk about the things that aren't commonly done right off the bat. So say your baseline blood work comes back quote unquote normal. Cause I know a lot of people are gonna be like, amylase and lipase are high, but I'll get to that. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's not reliable. <laughs> you want to run a PLI. So IDEX has that snap CPL, but that just tells you normal or abnormal mm -hmm. in internal medicine. I, I know in our specialty practice, we're looking for a specific number. So PLI stands for pancreatic lipase immunoreactivity. We send that out to the lab. We use either IDEX or TAMU, Texas A&M, for that number because that is something that down the line that we will occasionally recheck, especially if we get those pancreatitis cases that are greater than 2,000. Yeah. Those ones are fun. Um. Yeah, having a specific number can help you, you know, monitoring going forward too. So again, getting yeah. the baseline is huge. So 
you know, the snap test positive negative, that's great. Cause that could be a rule out, but that doesn't replace mm-hmm. getting that number to see, you know, no. what's happening. Especially if you get an abnormal, you really want to try to shoot for that number. But nursing technician skills kind of come into play here. Blood draws are super important. You want to try to be accurate because tomolysis of samples can really affect some of these lab results. I know, so if you draw blood and it's extremely hemolyzed, you can have elevations of of some numbers that are just inaccurate. Mm -hmm. Same with like letting your blood sample sit out too long. So that can cause false hypoglycemia if you don't spin it in your serum separator tube within an hour, then you might have a doctor chasing after an insulinoma versus pancreatitis. Yeah. And and to go with, <laughs> yeah, and to go with the blood draw, you want to be as atraumatic to the cells as possible, right? So mm-hmm. when you're when you're going to when you're going to like draw the blood, don't pull back on the plunger all the way. You want to do a slow steady draw because you want to remember the more suction, the more you're pulling mm-hmm. those red blood cells past the needle, the more likely they are to rip. So if you've got an animal who's kind of hemolyzing more so than than a normal pet, just try to be mm. as atraumatic as possible. Right. And then yeah. remember, I mean, this is one of those things that way back when we were taught and we thought we'd never need to know about it. Remember that when you have a lot of lipemic sample, like it's really lipemic, mm-hmm. the lipemia, the, the cholesterol and all that stuff that's in there, that actually can cause hemolysis. So mm-hmm. it may, you may not be able to prevent hemolysis, but do the best that you can. And if you see a sample that's really lipemic, try to spin it down as soon as possible to help prevent the lipemia, the, the lipids and everything from sitting on the red blood cells, causing them to, to lice and rupture. So that's just yeah. another kind of tech tip is if you see that, just try to spin it down as, as quick as you can. And I think what we do, I mean, some of these patients you'll see extremely like hypovolemic. So I like butterfly catheters. I'm a huge fan of butterfly catheters. <laughs> In internal medicine, you'll learn that you don't do jug sticks. <laughs> nearly <laughs> as often as you used to in general practice. Right. Yeah. So we do a lot of back leg draws. So those butterfly catheters, instead of using a three CC syringe, reach for the one CC. You can grab three of them and just fill your sample tube that way. But that way it's a nice slow, steady draw. You're not putting as much pressure on those cells when you're, when you're pulling back on those smaller plungers. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a big thing to remember. It's not a race. You got to just nice and easy, slow, steady draw. Sometimes it's not a race. Sometimes it is. I'll, I'll give you people that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. But, and then separating the samples, if you actually read what your lab requires, like I know Texas really prefers that you separate the serum from the gel and put it in a plain top tube. So it, it can skew results. So just kind of pay attention to what your lab Mm -hmm. wants and and use your skills for drawing blood. It's a big thing. Yeah. Your doctors will appreciate it. (laughs) It's funny that you talk about butterflies. I love butterfly catheters. Um, I can hit just about anything with a butterfly catheter. You put me in front of a jug and yeah. I'm like, oh God, I got to hit this. Right. <laughs> and it's funny because we work right next to our oncology department. Like we're in the same room mm-hmm. and they use jugs for everything. And they're like, ah, I know, veins are for, for chemo. And it's, it's really funny. And we're like, no, no, no. Veins are for blood draws because everything has clotting disorder or liver disease. So <laughs> it's, it's one of those yeah. things. Please, if you work in if you work in general practice and you might be referring, please save the front leg veins for us to place catheters. It's it's super yeah. helpful. Just <laughs> start low. Start low. Start as low as you can. If you're gonna place it for us, just start like 
I mean, you can do those pedal catheters. Don't, don't be intimidated. So <laughs> anyway, off top, well, not really off topic, just <laughs> diverting a little. Skills. <laughs> skills. All those wonderful things that like when I do have a patient come into the hospital, I'm like, if only you would shave all the way around. <laughs> oh, see, Please. I'm not an all the way around shaver, but I will get the hair out of the way. Like I, I tuck the hair up with feathers. Cause I, I just, so I worked in a practice for GP that had a lot of show dogs and, and like, yeah. I had a lady tell me I wasn't allowed to shave at all. And we kind of made her sign an AMA mm-hmm. cause I was like, no. So I don't have it quite ingrained into me, but if you do work in a practice, either way, you want to make sure your catheter is going into a clean spot, right? So make sure you're yes. shaving properly where your catheter inserts. Don't drag your catheter through the hair to get to the insertion site. And then, you know, if you do have a lot of fur and, or hair around the catheter, use that the spray to remove it. Yeah. So you're not just yanking yeah, out all the hair because then, you know, animals get mad. So. That's what we do. I just feel bad when their hair is starting to get pulled. And I just, <laughs> it's, it's strictly just me feeling for the patient a little bit. Like yeah. it's like... I'm like, I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of to get back into the pancreatitis. So imaging, I know in, I know a lot of general practices use ultrasound. So what, and we hold for ultrasound a lot in, in specialty yeah. medicine. I know there are some techs out there doing it and great. We'll kind of not go too far into that, but on ultrasound, I notice when assisting, I've, I feel like I've been doing it enough that I can, I can notice. I'm like that pancreas looks hyperechoic or the fat around it looks hyperechoic. And some might be like, what does that mean? It just means it's bright. So hyperechoic is mean, it just means it's bright and brightness kind of leads us to believe that there's inflammation. It's angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was gonna say that, that inflammation, because there's, there's more tissue density, right? Yeah. So you've got fluids that are there. So that just looks brighter on ultrasound. Mm-hmm. And the other thing too, is you can actually see sometimes the, the pancreas itself looks black, mm-hmm. right? Scary. So it's hypoechoic, <laughs> but then everything else around it is hyperechoic. Those are, those are the ones that scare me more. Yes. Yes. So the decrease echogenicity hypoechoic is just suggesting that that pancreas is starting to die it's pancreatic necrosis it's, it's yeah. scary Ugh. necrotizing pancreatitis is probably one of the scariest things i can hear <laughs> in internal medicine that freaks me out so bad because i've lost patients i know it it's numerous it's so times bad. and i'm just like oh god and you just feel for them because you're like you know that they just feel awful they're in a lot of pain it's not it's not mm-hmm. great um so if you are doing mm-hmm. ultrasounds or assisting with ultrasounds in general practice and you see that and nobody says anything Thing, you're like, holy crap, this patient needs help. <laughs> and then fluid accumulation. So fluid, I mean, inflammation can cause fluid. Mm-hmm. It kind of goes the same. You'll see some post-ops. This is kind of off topic, but you'll see post-ops where they're just not quite right. And you'll do an ultrasound after surgery, like after splenectomy, and there's a little bit of fluid in there, just a little bit scant amount of fluid. And that can be just from, from inflammation. So that, that can be something that's frequently seen with pancreatitis patients. Yeah. And the fluid accumulation, you know, we, we do sometimes get a sample mm-hmm. of it to see what it is. Like, does it look inflammatory? Does it look like blood? Does it look like, you know, so that's all stuff that we can see with ultrasound and then get an ultrasound guided aspirate of that fluid mm-hmm. and then either do cytology in house. Right. So we can look at it. The doctors can look at it or we send it out for a pathologist to look at. And that can tell us a lot as yeah. well. You know, we, they may see cancer cells mm-hmm. and then we're like, Oh, we're dealing with something completely different. Yeah. So but yeah. I think diagnostically though, like to me, the PLI is pretty like if that's high, I were treating for pancreatitis, but I know there, I've never done this. Um, but some clinics will take like aspirates of, or biopsies of pancreases just to 
truly get that definitive diagnosis of pancreatitis. I'm not a huge fan just because to me, you're causing more trauma to the pancreas and you're going to piss it off even more. Not to mention severe pancreatitis patients are poor anesthetic patients. Like they're, they're just, yeah, it's not ideal that I feel like unless there is something specifically on the pancreas that you're really trying to get a sample of, I, I can't imagine just doing that to get a definitive pancreas. Yeah. My, my doctors definitely, they don't aspirate or biopsy for just a pancreatitis because mm-hmm. they're like the PLI is up. Yeah. I can see that it's mad. The only times that we'll get biopsies is is usually like if they're already in there for something else, you know, mm-hmm. maybe gallbladder mucus seal or something else. And they're like, ah, the pancreas looks weird. Yeah. They'll biopsy it. But we usually usually don't aspirate or biopsy the pancreas for the same exact reason. It just, it just makes it mad. So we try, we try to leave it alone. Now you do, (laughs) you do have some of those cases that do need surgery. You have those pancreatic abscesses, Mm -hmm. like those need to come out. (laughs) Um, Those are also terrifying. I hope nobody ever sees those. So (laughs) those those are scary. So kind of leading into treatment though. So say you've run all the tests um, on ultrasound. It looks like pancreatitis, PLI is high. They have all the symptoms. Now it's kind of determining how severe is this? Is this inpatient care or outpatient? Outpatient care is what I think I was super used to when it came to like seeing a possible pancreatitis. I feel like in general practice, you kind of catch it early. So we do sub-Q fluids, antiemetics, antibiotics like Metro, especially if they're, if they're having diarrhea and then appetite stimulants if needed. You really want to get the body kind of functioning normal. You want to treat symptomatically and get your patients eating in order to kind of help them recover quicker. Yeah. And, and speaking of that, they're kind of in the, you know, when I first started in veterinary medicine, the, the school of thought was if you have a pancreatitis patient, you don't feed Mm -hmm. them. You try to keep smells to a minimum because we don't want to stimulate the pancreas. And so that was kind of the, what we did with pancreatitis Mm -hmm. patients. There's been studies out now in the last few years that say that that's actually not good. So we try to get them eating as, as quickly as we can, because we want to stimulate things to start passing through and get them out of the system. The other thing too, is when you're starving a patient, you're starving the cells within the gastrointestinal mm-hmm. system. And so once those start dying off, that's a problem too. So then you, you then you have like malnutrition set mm-hmm. in and everything. So it really is a change in thought that now we feed our pancreatitis patients. So placing like a feeding tube, whether that's a nasoesophageal or, um, an esophageal feeding tube, Mm -hmm. you know, we have those options now. Yeah. Well, and I think too, but appetite stimulants are huge. Yeah, definitely. And there's so so many out there now that like, it's kind of, yes, it doesn't always work, but that's when the tubes Mm -hmm. come into place. But I think too, with the old school thought was you starve your patient, but then once you start feeding them again and say they are really hungry, everybody just wants to feed, feed, feed. You can run into refeeding syndrome, which I'm sure we will get into Mm -hmm. because I do love talking about it. Um, (laughs) yeah but you can throw their electrolytes out of whack and actually make them sicker. So it's one of those things yeah. where if you're starving a patient and then you do feed them and then they're like, Oh my God, I'm so hungry. And then you're like, Oh great. Keep eating. It, it's actually, it, it hinders their healing. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's forgotten sometimes too. Yeah. And I think it's, it's one of those things where if you've never seen a refeeding patient, yeah. you don't know what it looks Definitely. like. Right. And you don't know that you should be monitoring for it. So, so yeah, I think, I think, 
we definitely need to have an episode about rebounding yeah. syndrome because it's it's huge. We'll right? dive down um, the nutrition section, like how you are actually are supposed to start reintroducing food to your patient. <laughs> oh, I know our our nutrition peeps will love us for for talking about nutrition. So maybe we should get a guest on for that one because like, I don't want to. <laughs> we'll put this um, out in the universe. Uh, Kara Burns, if you are listening to this, we would love for you to come talk to us. Yes, please. I know a little bit about nutrition, but there's definitely smarter people out there. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say we can see if our VTS friends that have a nutrition VTS can come talk. Yeah, about it. Yes, but exactly. Yeah, if you if you don't know who Kara Burns is, just just look her up. She's kind of amazing, right? And we all want to be like her. Someday, yeah, exactly. So. So, I mean, I know you and I are more dealing with the in-hospital treatment of pancreatitis. So we do see the scary ones, those necrotizing pancreatitis mm -hmm. patients, or just severe pancreatitis, which I take any day over necrotizing pancreatitis. <laughs> so IV fluids are a must because you worry about dehydration and electrolyte imbalances. IV meds just so they don't have to take some of those medications on an empty stomach, especially when you are trying to yeah. get them to eat. And pain medications are huge. We do a lot of CRIs for our pancreatitis patients, which I'm pretty sure we talked about in our pain management episode. Yeah, um, yeah. Fentanyl is huge for our pancreatitis patients. We love it. Yeah. And, and it's hard because you know, opioids can slow down mm -hmm. your GI motility. So it's a, it's a fine balance of making mm -hmm. sure they are not painful, but we're not hindering GI motility. Yeah, exactly. and, and on a, on a side note on that, actually, I'm going to wait because we're going to talk about some tech skills and some stuff we can do like nursing care. So I'm going to wait on that and we'll <laughs> come back to that idea in just a few minutes. So, okay. So if we're going to move forward, then fresh frozen plasma has been talked about a lot when dealing with pancreatitis patients, but it's never actually yeah. been truly studied. But I know veterinarians will sometimes use it. There, there's reasons behind it. So, but it's never been proven. So in our pancreatitis mm -hmm. patients, like they can become hypoalbuminemic. So low albumin, mm -hmm. low, low protein levels, which can be pretty scary. They can develop coagulopathies. So they can start going into DIC or having some sort of bleeding issues. And then mm -hmm. if you want to get into the nitty, nitty gritties, they pancreatitis, the inflammation releases proteinase. And then so fresh frozen plasma has anti effects to that to try to help kind of oh, balance. Yeah. 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 So you say it differently than I do. It's like when people say metronidazole <laughs> versus metronidazole. <laughs> like, Ooh, potato, yeah. potato, metronidazole. Right? I yes. heard that one. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, so it, yeah. Fresh frozen plasma can definitely help in some of those situations. It's definitely not warranted, I think, in like just a normal pancreatitis patient that is responding to symptomatic medications. So you need the fresh frozen plasma really to combat some of the other things going on with your pancreatitis patient. And it used, I think we used to use it way more frequently. And I think yeah. it, it's kind of fallen out of favor with my doctors. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is there is an expense part, yes. right? Of a transfusion. Plus there's the potential for transfusion reactions. So I think we tend to not go to it first anymore. We definitely like if there's, yes, if low albumin and that kind of thing, we'll use it. But other than yeah, that, we, I think we kind of tend to stand, stay away from it as now. Yeah, a little bit yeah exactly. So then I think you throw in a couple technician skills. If you are dealing with an inpatient hospitalized 
pancreatitis patient and again kind of touching back on to the pain management and CRIs and things like that that's pretty big yeah we definitely with the pancreatitis we definitely will have the the pain meds on board the other thing too is we talked about the opioids you know it slows down GI motility so it's a really good idea for nursing care wise that we get those patients up and moving mm-hmm. because with movement we actually kind of help stimulate the gut so even if a patient doesn't totally go outside just getting them up maybe walking them around the room if that's all they can do because a lot of times these guys don't want to walk yeah. so there's there's that as well mm-hmm. but and just keeping them comfortable if it's an older pet making sure you have plenty of bedding that's soft so we're not getting pressure sores rotating them mm-hmm. you know if they're not getting up on their own because you know we've got them on good pain meds and then hygiene is huge mm-hmm. so making sure you know, we're keeping them clean. We talked about it in the diarrhea episode. We're just keeping the back end nice and clean is, is good. Yeah, definitely. And then kind of going on to that multimodal, I've never done it, but I know I've read about it where there's like those intraperitoneal blocks for pancreatitis where you're, have you ever done that? I have never seen one. And like, that just sounds very interesting to me. But also super. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of (laughs) like, I'm like, wait, what? You're doing what? You're injecting like a Um, foreign material into the abdomen that in my thought that it would cause more inflammation, but it does, you're just blocking the pain. Uh, it's weird. It's interesting. I'll have to see if I can find the article and link it because I know I've read about it. Yeah, that would be, I mean, it would be cool. and, And we could definitely, I mean, sounds like something that we can touch on at some point too. Cause I mean, that there's a ton of, things that you could potentially use that for. Yeah. So, and, and again, that's upping your tech skills, right? Yeah. Is learning new things like that. So. Yeah. I feel like you could use it like post-op explorer or something. That'd be, I mean, it'd be pretty cool. I do know for our post-op explorers, sometimes they'll do like a, like they call it the lidocaine splash yeah. where they just kind of, before they're closing up, they just squirt a little, I think they do saline and yeah. Um, yeah, I, lidocaine and, and like just put it on the surfaces in the abdomen. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's like a, it's a, specific like mixture oh yeah. I gotta I gotta see if I can find that article I'm pretty sure I have it saved and then yeah, of course, and, like, and if not I can ask my surgeons because I'm sure they have a reference oh somewhere. probably probably Which, having a surgeon and that you can ask these questions to is pretty cool because you're like pain management they're all about pain management right so that's that's always good and then nursing skills of being able to manage a transfusion so if you are doing those fresh frozen plasma transfusions you want to monitor for transfusion reactions and, and just being able to know how to properly set up a fresh frozen plasma transfusion and thaw it correctly. That does take some education. So it's, it's nice. It's a nice skill to use. Not necessarily for those because usually it's bad, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, transfusion administration and monitoring is huge. We, I'm working on, I'm, I'm working on some in-house continuing education mm-hmm. for my, the, my coworkers that I'll probably revamp for us at some point, but it's, it's understanding like cross matches mm-hmm. and how to do that. So transfusions, it, it is a really good skill to have as a technician, understanding how to administer it mm-hmm. safely, properly, you know, so we're not causing more harm than good. Because I think some people think that a transfusion, whether it's plasma or red blood cells, that it's pretty harmless, yeah. but it, it's not. It, there, there are a lot of things that you need to be looking for. And so understanding that as a technician is huge. Yeah. And I don't know if you have the book about it, it's transfusion uh, medicine. I will. Yeah. Yes, the transfusion medicine. Not to mention yeah. um, somebody wrote an article about it recently. Oh, that's right. So, <laughs> who, 
who would that have been? Oh, wait, uh, is her name Jordan? Yeah, you know, about like yeah. how you would use it or why you would use transfusions. Yeah, yeah and where, where was that article published? That was published at NAFTA. So if you're a member of NAFTA, <laughs> you should get that journal. It's in the, what month is this? It's in the October, November journal. P.S. we'll totally link to it in the show <laughs> notes because it's super awesome. I was so excited when she like told us that she got that. Super excited. Yes. Anyway, so yes, lots of, we have lots of information to how to do that properly. (laughs) (laughs) I also am a giant blood nerd, which sounds funny, but I am because we'll talk about it at some point, I'm sure, because my passion stuff is immune mediated blood disorders. We'll get into it at some point, but yes, I'm a hematology nerd, so I'm all about it. But we'll also link to the book because that book is awesome. I love that book. um, And you can get it on. Shout out to Ken Yagi, by the way. He is like the blood transfusion master. So (laughs) I went to one of his. He is also one of my tech goals. I'm like, I want to be like him someday. Yeah, I went to one of his lectures and I was like, I need to be you. (laughs) Like, (laughs) (laughs) Right? Let us know who your tech goals are because it's always fun to get new new names. Right? Anyway. All right. Well, we'll get back to what we were talking about. I know. I know. This is going to be like a common theme. We're just going to have like little branches off of our episodes. I mean, I feel like that's what we always do as technicians where we go down rabbit holes. It's like think. Yeah. Yeah. You just like shiny object. Okay. So (laughs) client communication though. So say you send your patient home. What is your pet parent going to have to kind of look out for. So I think a big thing is appetite because that is usually one of the first things that people notice. Yes, they're going to notice if their pet's vomiting maybe every other day, first thing in the morning, but well, I guess maybe not everybody will notice, but appetite's (laughs) key. Are they eating a full meal? Are they eating normal? Are they eating a little bit? Is it slower for them to finish? These things are kind of key into knowing if they're improving or not. So they go home. I don't really expect most of my patients to eat right away when they go home. I, I expect them to eat but not normal. So, but I, I expect to see it gradually improving day to day when I check in on them. Yeah. And I, and I like to tell my clients not only, okay. So first of all, depending on how long they've been in the clinic slash hospital, they're not going to be normal when they go home. Mm -hmm. Right. We, if they're, especially if they're in a hospital, cause we're bugging them every like one to two hours, they're not getting their normal sleep rhythm. Right. So they, I usually say they're going to be excited to be get home they're going to crash out, find their like, their spot that they love to go to and sleep, right? Because they need to catch up on sleep. But I tell people, you should see gradual improvement every single day. Yeah. If you see them become stagnant or get worse, definitely let the technician know. So that's just something that's really good to make sure that we let the clients know because technicians are usually the ones doing the releases from mm-hmm. the clinics and hospitals. So letting them know, look, they're not going to be a hundred percent normal, but we want to see them improving and, and please reach out to us if you have questions or concerns. Right? Yeah. Like that's huge. Making sure they feel like they can yeah. talk. To and us. it takes a lot off the doctor too. The doctor that you work for, like the, they, they're busy. They need to use their brain treating the next patient. We need to take off the communication and then we can be that middleman and be like, hey, you know, Fluffy's not eating very well. Do you want to add on an appetite stimulant if it wasn't sent home? Take that burden off of your doctor with having to kind of communicate with those clients every day because they are worried about that patient. 
they, it's just, they have mm. so many other things going on. Well, and honestly, most of the questions that clients have are, are things that we can yes. answer. And if we can't, we can go talk to our doctor and then still, you know, relay that information. Yeah. But 90% of the time, it's stuff that we can talk to them yes. about. Especially if and, we're properly educated and we know exactly what the clients yeah. should expect. So yeah. I, I think that is big. And then I, I think one of the biggest questions I get is from clients is how, well, how am I going to know if, if they're nauseous, lip smacking, drooling, yeah. not eating very well or slow to eat? Yeah. The other, the other part of being nauseous that, that I tell clients is, especially with pancreatitis, you'll have like a dog or a cat, right? They're super excited about the food. You put it on the ground, they go up to it, they smell it. And then all of a sudden they like kind of back mm -hmm. away from it. And you can tell that they're like, I'm excited. And then they smell it and they're instantly nauseous. Mm -hmm. You know what that feels like. If you've ever been sick, you're like, I'm so hungry. And then you smell it and you're like, Oh no, yeah. I just kidding. I don't want any of that. So you know, it's similar with dogs and cats. Like they get excited about the food and then they're like, Oh no. And they either, you know, they just back away and go away or they vomit a little bit or whatever it is, but it's just a good thing to, to tell people that that could potentially be what's mm -hmm. going on. And, and I like to, if you suspect that they're nauseous, go ahead and treat them for yes. nausea because most of the times the medications that we're giving for nausea, they don't really have side effects that we have to be worried mm -hmm. about. So treating for nausea. Great. If they're not nauseous, well, no harm yeah. done. If they are nauseous, hopefully they feel yeah. better. So I always tell clients err on the side of giving an anti-nausea medication than not giving it. Yeah. What I like to tell clients too, is like at least the first couple of days that you're home, because things are changing, like give it, give the serenia, give the appetite stimulant just for those first two days, because it says as needed on yeah. the label usually, but that way you're kind of covering grounds. And then as your pet is starting to act a little bit more normal after resting up from being in the hospital for how many ever days, then you should see that, okay, well, yeah, you know what? He is eating pretty well. Let me go ahead and hold off on this today and see what happens. So I do like them to give it at least the first like day or two, just to be sure. Yeah. Same here. The other thing too, that, um, cause you mentioned serenio or meripit and citrate. The other thing to tell clients is there have been some studies that show that there are some mm -hmm. pain management properties to serenia as far as the guts go. So it's, I think that also helps clients go ahead and give it. Cause you know, some clients don't want to give medications mm -hmm. or they're like, ah, I don't know how, but if you tell them, Hey, this is going to help with nausea. And there are some potential pain property, like things that are going on with it. I feel like they're a little bit more inclined to actually give it and just be like, Hey, you know, it, it won't get rid of all of it, but it can help a little yeah. bit. And so why not go ahead and use that? Yeah. Um, yeah, especially so there's, there's and then communicating like the long-term goals i like to inform my patients or my clients who go home especially with the schnauzer or something that mm. if your dog's had pancreatitis it, it very well could come back or happen again not necessarily come right back yeah. but you know in a year they might be right back here with pancreatitis again yeah. so i think um, yeah because that inflammation every time they get that inflammation, there's more scar yes. tissue, right? And so there's more da tissue damage. So they're more likely to have issues with it. So especially your chronic mm -hmm. pancreatitis patients. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes we're like, we have no idea what set them off, but they got set off again, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's just something that talking to clients and, and understanding that can help yeah. a lot. And then I think as like long-term goals for us techs though, I think we do need to be aware that like, I know when I was in general practice, like the first couple of years, I was like, oh, pancreatitis is just vomiting. You treat it, they go home, they're fine, but it can get worse. Mm -hmm. Like it can lead to bad things. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes. And I think it was one of those diseases that when I did finally start kind of getting a little bit more education and reading about all the things that can occur from pancreatitis, I was like, holy crap, these poor patients. Like, <laughs> especially yeah. after I had my like very first bad case, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. You'll never forget your first. I know. I remember my very first yeah. one. It was like the typical, like came in projectile vomiting and then went home and was fine. We never saw it again, but it was like that mm-hmm. classic, like projectile. <laughs> which yeah. is why I remember it. It was a Boston. <laughs> yeah. And then I had like, I remember my worst case and like, it was, you know, mm. so I think just kind of remembering for yourself that that's, it's not always just like treat with antiemetics and send it on its way. Yeah. And, and something too, to talk to clients about it, We talked about this, you know, the quality of life versus are we fixing mm-hmm. anything? It depends, right? So if we just have one bout of pancreatitis, sometimes that's it. There are some Mm -hmm. animals, they have it once they don't have it again, but it could be that it becomes more of a chronic situation, especially if owners aren't as compliant with food. Yes. That's, that's one of the big things or the dog that constantly gets into the garbage, or maybe they have little kids that throw (laughs) crackers on the floor and laugh and think cheese is amazing that the dog eats. And cats, cats get chronic pancreatitis all the time. (laughs) Yeah. That, yeah, this is very true actually. Yeah. So in cats as well, although I feel like they don't eat as many crackers from kids. I feel like cats are just their own. Yeah. Cats just have their own like underlying disease. They're like, we're going to act fine until we're not. (laughs) Or in, in like the diabetic patients, right? Like just they're, they're gonna have, you can almost guarantee they're going to have pancreatitis again. Yes. So talking to a client about quality of life is huge. We have a quality of life tracker Mm -hmm. that you guys can download and give to your clients. It's based on the quality of life tracker that was created. And I can't think of her name right now, but it's based off of something that a doctor, especially especially for um, cancer patients, but Mm -hmm. it relates to any kind of chronic disease, right? So we have a tracker, you can download it. We'll put the link in the notes so that you can can get that on our website, like pretty easily at the bottom of the page, the internal medicine for vet page. And so just having them, especially because then you could quantitate, like what are the different things? And you could say, you know, how many good days do we have? How many bad days do we see a trend? Mm -hmm. So that's something too for clients that can really help them as far as like figuring out long-term, you know, what, what's going to happen with my pet? How are they doing? And they may not need it, but sometimes it gives them something concrete to tell you about, right. And give you a number versus calling you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Versus calling you. I get a lot of phone calls where they're like, well, I think it's time. And I'm like, you know, your pet best. Yeah. Like I, I knew your pet for four days. Like, so I think that is a helpful tool. And then, I mean, I think just follow up is key. Just kind of keep in touch Mm -hmm. with your clients, find out what symptoms they're exhibiting at home, help them do the tracker if they need it. And then rechecking that PLI, we do that pretty frequently, especially with those high numbers. Like, because we like the number so much, we like to recheck it in 10 days, especially if they're doing well, even some clients won't follow up, but that's, I was going to say, we also do, we do recheck ultrasounds as well. Sometimes Mm -hmm. where we just do a quick peek at the pancreas. Does it look less inflamed? What's going on? So yeah, just rechecking something with something concrete, you know, right. So the, the ultrasound image to look at the pancreas or the PLI that gives you a specific number. And just remember too, with, with the PLI, depending on where they're at in the disease process, Mm -hmm. you know, we may catch it on the way up, like, especially if it's an acute pancreatitis, like you're, you're catching it on the way up, it may go up higher and then it'll start to come down. Or it could be that, you yeah. so it depends on where you catch it, what mm-hmm. the numbers are going to do, but that's another reason to kind of keep 
track of that. And then you can, you know, you can check, especially your chronic pancreatitis patients. If they're feeling a little bit off, maybe you check the PLI and see where they're at. Like, are Mm -hmm. they, are they about to have that episode? And then we treat, you know, and kind of get things to settle down or is it something else that's going on with them? So, and I I think the communication is key. You know, you take the notes of what you've been talking about with your client, then they come in for the recheck and the doctor can read your notes and then visually see that the pancreas looks happier on ultrasound and the PLI is a little bit better and they see what symptoms the pets have been exhibiting for the last 10 days. It's helpful. And I think it's appreciated by doctors too, especially if we can get those good communications written in the record. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. So, and then I know, so medications that most pets go home with are like symptomatic medications. You have your antiemetics, appetite stimulants, plus or minus antibiotics. Yeah. We've sent not many home with subkey fluids. Like the ones that we send home teaching them subkey fluids are the ones who like decline in hospital care, which is fine. It happens. Yeah. We try to manage it the best we can. But I know in the cases of not patients not responding, it's usually when it's referred to us, mm-hmm. but we've sent some severe cases that don't respond home on like prednisolone and or cyclosporin just to try to get that body to Yeah, there is some thought that some of these patients may actually be an autoimmune disease. And so mm-hmm. using the steroids and the cyclosporin can potentially you know, suppress the immune system from attacking the pancreas, which is kind of an interesting yeah. thought process. And I think there's more studies that are going into that. So I think in the next few years, mm-hmm. you're probably going to hear a little bit more of that. But Definitely. yeah, sometimes using the anti-inflammatory plus the immune suppression can can get these kids, yeah. especially your chronic ones, they're, they're, they're starting to see that there may be some autoimmune component to it. But again, that's probably something that you guys aren't going to be dealing with in a general practice. But if you're working in an internal internal medicine practice or specialty practice, that might be something that you're noticing or that you're talking about. I imagine that'll be like a feline study since it's always like, why did (laughs) this cat get pancreatitis? They don't eat out of the garbage. (laughs) Mine does. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Right. So I think (laughs) cautions to look out for. I have this really long snippet that we'll put in our show notes that I obtained from a website that will kind of link, but pancreatitis can lead to other complications. So generalized inflammation can lead to DIC, pulmonary Mm -hmm. failure, myocarditis, and even multi-organ failure. So it can get bad. And I'll I'll put the reason in our show notes as to like exactly what's happening that kind of allows that to occur. Yeah. And I think think that's probably in reference to like SIRS, so systemic inflammatory response syndrome, which again, you have a major inflammation and things just get (laughs) mad, right? Like the the cascades are all activated and things just go crazy. So that's sometimes why these kids just tank, right? And then we have to support them and get it through it. And I'm a firm believer that some patients just choose to like be done. So it's like, you you know, sometimes you can see that look in their eye. And sometimes I'll even tell my doctor, I'm like, I just think that they're just kind of over it. They don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. We get a lot of those like 15 year old patients and I'm like, I wouldn't want to do it anymore. (laughs) You're like, uh, yeah. And I mean, that's where like patient, like client visits can help too, right? Like they know. I mean, I remember when my dog was in the hospital for something, I just looked at her face and I was like, nope she's done. Like I could tell yeah. like that. I was like, no, given everything that's going on, I see that look on her face. And, and again, you know, your pet best clients know their mm-hmm. pet best. And, and we may, cause we do this, right. We want to save everything. Yes, we need to take ourselves out of that. Right. And just be like, what is best for our clients? What is best for our patients? And also what's best for mm-hmm. us 
right? It's not always in our best interest to do the, I'm going to be the savior thing, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. the best thing that yes. we can do is know that it's time to stop. Yeah, exactly. Now I will admit that like my favorite cases are those ones that are really, really bad and we do pull them back from the brink and I'm like, it's just so rewarding. Oh, yeah, but then yeah, I do have those clients. <laughs> yeah. I have those patients that I look at in the cage and I'm like, man, you look miserable and like nothing I'm doing is helping. So yeah. I just like, those ones are the ones that, you know, the reasons why we get burnt out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I believe that is called ethical fatigue. Yes. yes. We'll talk about that but, some other time. And then once again, kind of one of the cautions is before you bring up the fresh frozen plasma to your doctor, it is used, but there is no literature to support it. Mm. So I don't, I don't want people to be like, where's this study? But I do have a link as to like, I think it was that girl on the run who did that. Mm. I, I'll have that link. Yeah. And she if anybody finds a random study, by the way, that please share it with us. We would love, we love links to studies because again, we work in internal medicine. So studies are amazing. Or if you know, your doctor has something that they refer to, please, please forward it to us. We, it's awesome. The more info we we get, the more info you get, the more we share, the smarter we all get. So the whole reason why we're doing this is to just get more education. (laughs) So, so our tip of the week, it's the tip of the week. Do not assume that a pancreatitis patient is not painful. Mm. I, I think it's pretty, you know, we have those pain charts for a reason. Like see if you can assess your patient's pain, have your doctor palpate the abdomen. I think that is one thing that gets overlooked, unfortunately, sometimes in pancreatitis patients that also, they'll come into the specialty practice and I'm like, they're so painful. Yeah. And I, I know that we do a lot of ultrasounds for our patients and that's something when you're restraining for an ultrasound, mm-hmm. you know, if, if your pet's painful, it may need some pain medications to get through mm-hmm. that ultrasound, especially if they've got like pancreatitis or some other thing that yes. you're pushing on their abdomen, right? Yeah. If they're responding, they're painful. Yes. So, you know, it may not be behavioral, it could be painful. So just, again, keep that in mind too. Yeah. Advocate for your patients for sure. So yeah. And then watch for disease progression. So like I said, I'll have that link about like what all can happen, but yeah, you can lead to those like coagulopathies and multi-organ failure. So (laughs) definitely watch out for the progression and just kind of keep an eye on your patient. If things are not moving in the direction that you or your doctor feel like it should speak up. Yeah. Progression of disease. And that's where as technicians, we use our skills, right? Cause we are, we are kind of the front line for our doctors. Cause I don't know about you, but my doctor sometimes goes into our CCU maybe two, three times a day mm-hmm. to look at patients unless, you know, one of the techs in CCU comes and says, Hey, I'm noticing, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever it is. Yes. Can you take a look at them? But we are the ones that are going to have our eyes and ears on our patients, our hands on patients. Most of the time, yeah. like our, our CCU texts at least once an hour in a cage looking at things. So yeah. making sure that if you, you got spidey senses, right? Yeah. <laughs> so use your spidey senses and just, and just talk it, talk to your doctor, because if you're like, something's wrong, something's off, you know, have your doctor come check them out and see, you know, is there something that they're noticing? They're like, oh yeah, we're noticing, you know, petechia or we're noticing increased effort for respiration or whatever it is. And mm-hmm. then you can have that conversation. And again, using your tech skills, using yeah. your spideys, your tech spidey senses. Yeah. I think it just makes us more valuable. It makes us more valuable to our doctors. If we have the education behind us and we can explain what we think we're seeing, why we think it's occurring. And, you know, we just have those senses where we're monitoring our patients so closely that we can bring it to the doctor. It, it makes their job easier. So therefore they value us more. 
Yeah. And, and honestly, if you're, if you're still a baby tech, you know, that it's, there is nothing wrong with you asking a question. Mm -hmm. So like, even if it's just the senior tech that's, you know, that's in your clinic and be like, Hey, I don't understand this, or I'm noticing this and Mm -hmm. maybe they can talk you through it. Yeah. And so that you learn, oh yeah, that's normal or no, that's not normal. And then maybe they go, oh no, we need to talk to the doctor or no, that's, we're expecting to see that. Right. And then Mm -hmm. again, this is a soapbox for me is documenting stuff. Right. So making sure in your, in your notes that you're putting what you're seeing so that we can watch for progression, right? If you're all of a sudden your heart rate or your respiration rate went from 22, now it's 28. Well, four hours later, it's 32 and then it's Mm -hmm. 44. And now all of a sudden we're at 60. You know, we can, we can talk to the doctor and be like, Hey, our respiration rates increasing. What's going on? Is it painful? Is it fluid overload or whatever? So again, watching for progression and talking to your doctor, talking to the team and and being Mm -hmm. proactive. I love it when the techs ask me questions, like, especially in the ICU and they're like, why are we giving this medication? I love it. So, yeah. uh, you know, don't be afraid to ask. And and what we think is normal, you know, cause we have our VTS. So we're like, oh yeah, everybody knows that. That doesn't mean that the newest person in your clinic knows. So oh, again, yeah. don't be afraid to ask questions. Otherwise, yeah, I love it. Otherwise you're never going to know. Right. So if you have a yeah. question, either ask someone, look it up, you know, we have plenty of books in my clinic. So sometimes yes. I just go grab a book off the shelf and I'm like, what is it that I'm, what, it, what is it that I'm thinking of? So I, I love it. I think the best example I have for like, just like a difference in opinions is we have people who will be like the hematocrit's 30. What do we do? And I'm like 30. That's not bad. That's great. What are you talking about? <laughs> so You're like, I think yep. it really just depends. <laughs> and now for the question of the week. So our question for this week is going to be what it was the most rewarding case of pancreatitis you have seen. So something that you're like, woohoo, we got him out of the hospital. Or is, is there one specific case that you learned the most from? Um, we'd love to hear, you know, what your experiences are with pancreatitis. And if you have tips or tricks that you guys used with these, that would be cool too. So definitely check out the episode. This is episode number six on pancreatitis. So if you go to internalmedicineforvettechs.com slash podcast, you will see episode number six in the show notes. So go to the show notes page. All of our handouts will be there, all the resources, the, the links that we have. We've got plenty of them for you. And make sure to, uh, to take a look at those. Let us know if you've got anything else. And if you have articles, <laughs> send us articles. Yes. You can always put it in the comments there and, and we can get some communication going on that. We have ways for you to contact us. You can email the show and, and we'll definitely try to get back to you. If you have questions, concerns, or if you just want to submit something that you want us to share, we can definitely do that oh, for you yeah. too. Yeah. If there's a specific topic you want us to cover, send it to us. We would, we would love to know what you guys want to hear about. Otherwise, we're just going to talk about stuff that we want to talk about. About, which is cool, you know, whatever. <laughs> is there anything else that you want to talk about this week, Jordan? Or you think we got the pancreatitis kind of covered for the moment? I think so. I feel like we did good. So <laughs> lots of information. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, it was awesome talking to you guys again. Hopefully, uh, you got to work on time because I know I listen to episodes, uh, podcast episodes in the car, keeps my commute from being horrible. And uh, we will definitely talk to you guys next week. So next week we'll be talking about endoscopic foreign bodies. So, you know, we'll 
we'll get into that and a little bit of endos endoscopy. We're going to start with foreign bodies because it's a little bit easier than talking about the the typical endoscopies <laughs> that we do. But all we'll of talk procedures, about the, the general. Yeah. <laughs> and then you know we will see you guys next week. Okay. Have a good week. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.